Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. And between the years 1990 and 2000, I did hundreds of interviews with musicians for the Irish Times in a slot that was originally called the Joe Jackson Interview. When Paddy Woodworth, the newspaper's arts editor, launched its now legendary sound and vision double page spread. The name above the title idea was his. And I once said to Paddy, why me, Lord? I was joking, though editors do like to be addressed that way. Paddy explained that he chose me primarily because we both believe that the art should be central to political debate rather than relegated to the sidelines, and that as such, popular music, as an outgrowth of popular culture, could and should be explored from a socio-political perspective. What does that mean in real terms? Okay, by way of a lead-in to the tape I want to play, let me give you one or three examples. One of my peers in the newspaper was a renowned rock critic. He loved in particular American, British and Irish guitar-based bands such as U2, who were usually comprised of four white guys. Cool, we all loved such bands at one stage. I certainly did. But increasingly, cultural analysts and not just feminists had come to call such bands proponents of cock rock, with all the political ramifications that implies. So I set out to broaden the net, as it were, to get a gender balance. And I set out to get a genre balance, to give as much space to, for example, Irish traditional acts such as the Chieftains. And even if all I got was a phone interview, something I usually rejected because it didn't lend itself to in-depth discussion, I was happy to say, you bet. What follows is one of my Irish Times interviews. Enjoy. Hello, hi. Is this Mr. Jackson? It is indeed. I have John Baez for you. Thank you. Hang on one second. You lucky man. Who, me? Uh, hi, Mr. <laughs> Hello there. Hi. Okay, talking to the Irish Times. Uh, I see that on my little piece of paper here. Okay, how long have we got? Well, I see you, yeah, you know, just start talking, see how long, you can, see what we can get done in 15 minutes. I'm so jammed up and we leave tomorrow, but I can get a lot done. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the context is an arts page interview mm-hmm. where I want to kind of remind readers of your history and then end the article by talking about the new album. Okay. So there's a logic to that. Okay. I recently picked up uh, a three CD history of folk on Rhino and Silver Dagger is the second track. I know. You see, you didn't see it? I did see it, yeah. Right. But if you read the sleeve notes, it goes beyond the old purist's approach, and it links the kind of impulses that plunged folkies into gloom with the thing that led most people to go into rock and roll with Elvis. So it breaks down those barriers. Would you agree with that? I'd never heard it put that way, and I hadn't read those notes. Right. Into gloom. <laughs> yeah, that some people danced to deny the darkness, and other people explored it through writing about it, but, but that maybe you were all linked together rather than enemies. Thrown one at me, I'd never thought about, <clears throat> and I'm not quite sure what the question is. What is the question? Right, but the same impulses were firing rock and rollers or firing folk at the time, even though they were seen as mortal enemies. I see. Um, couldn't have been too mortal. You know, we were really were stuck on the same ship. Right. Um, I'll, however, you know, in my own particular role, was very isolated. Became very isolated. But those were not just musical reasons. I don't think. You know, it was sort of a constantly putting too much pressure on people to, to do, do, do. Right. Because I was a political activist as well as a singer. Sure. Um, I, don't, I really hadn't thought about it beyond that. Okay, but your own roots also incorporated uh, rhythm and blues. You liked stuff like Earth Angel, and you were listening to that kind of stuff back when you did become politically active. Wasn't that true? It was just a, probably just preceded it, although the seeds from my political activism had been planted 
very early on. So there was a, certainly an awareness by age 12, 13, and 14, and picked up the ukulele at 13. Right. I was glued to my little plastic radio rhythm and blues at 13, 14, and 15. Right, um, right. I didn't, didn't, didn't hear the first folk song probably till I was 15 or 16. That was via Belafonte, Seeger, and Odetta? Well, Belafonte first by at least a year. All right, okay. My desperate auntie um, <laughs> found out that Pete Seeger was playing locally right. and wanted to get me, you know, into something, expose me to something that she thought was a little more substantial. Right. And that uh, got me off to that. But did you have those prejudices against uh, rock pop culture at the time? No, I no, I didn't. I, that developed as I, I think, found my own comfort and at the same time probably social political roots right. in the very introspective, long folk ballads. Right. In fact, I was talking about this the other day with somebody, and I realized there's a two-year period where I really was not, didn't, was not particularly political. I had simply become engrossed in the, in the, in the ballad. Okay. Am I, am I As in history. <clears throat> Sorry? Narrative history, tales of history, and looking yes, back. And, and, and I think for me, um, it just touched something... I was a lonely kid, right. and these songs, for some reason, t just touched a nerve in me. And I could, I mean, I know that I've joked about evenings where I would sing one endless dark ballad after another. Well, it sounds very Irish. People got giggles one night, and I didn't know what they were laughing at. And I finally realized it was just like church, you know? Oh, right, yeah. Giggles in church, they just need some relief. <laughs> well, they love that in Ireland. That's the way the ballad structures are here and always were. <laughs> There are echoes of that too, though, on the new album. To jump forward a bit, you know, the the longing for for maybe uh, other times, times of innocence. I mean, there's a kind of consistency. On which album? Sorry? The late your latest album, Play Me Backwards. Oh, uh, longing for times of innocence. Hmm, I wouldn't put it that way. Would you not? No, I would say that that album is a culmination of five years of finally putting into action um, the sporadic understanding I'd had that my career was flopping around on the dock like a fish. Right. I, I just hadn't got it. I think and part of the reason was that it all came so easily to me at the beginning. All right. I never planned to be a singer. I have no right. business sense. I had never planned anything. And then all of a sudden, um, where was the career? And I didn't understand that because I was still working and giving concerts. Um, sort of didn't understand or pick up on the fact that the people weren't buying the album particularly anymore and for the most part for the general public I had become invisible right and uh, when that finally did sink in then I realized I had a choice to rest on my legendary laurels which huh. isn't all that bad you know right. if I had been ready but I was not ready and felt a number of things one is just pure ego don't want to be musically slipped forever into uh, a 60s folk yeah. performer and also, my vocal cords are really quite an extraordinary gift, and they are still very much intact. I thought I owed it to them and to me to, to take a very serious crack at uh, my musical career. I never had put it on up front. I never had uh, given it priority over everything else and made some very serious decisions. I mean, I hadn't had a manager. I hadn't had a decent record company in Sure, right. Well, when you going back to the beginning, you did kind of reject uh, Albert Grossman, didn't you? I mean, I, oh, I saw. Absolutely, yeah. Why was I mean, I saw him described in a book called Rockonomics as a man whose instincts were brutally on money. They were. Yeah. And that frightened me, and I didn't like it. Right. I mean, my instincts had nothing to do with 
money. And, um, oh, I don't know that they ever will. Okay. Um, but it wasn't just that. It was a style that threatened me as an 18-year-old purist. All right. And I was, you know. Uh, um, and he would say things like, well, who do you want? And I said, well, what are you talking about? You, who do you want? You want Marlon Brando? You, want, you know, like, I'll get him for you kind of stuff. Well, I'm good God. I, was, right. I, somebody else might have been able to manage it. <laughs> I right. was terrified. Well, he comes across as a bear in the movie, Don't Look uh, Back. Yeah. I mean, you do get a good sense of where he was coming from on a business level. You know, he's also an extremely generous man. Right. He's very, very generous. He had, a, In some ways, he had a very big and generous heart. Right. It was just that sort of sleazy business side that I could absolutely couldn't manage at that age, particularly. What about that whole the, the revisionist book back and they say there was a moral hypocrisy involved in folkies singing the praises of the left while making millions and maybe sustaining right-wing power structures? Oh, oh, sure, et cetera, et cetera. You know, yeah. I sort of pride myself in never having been a left winger, even though everybody thought I was. Sure, right. You know, same could be said for a pacifist. I mean, um, to, to take, uh, I, I guess I couldn't sort that all out for years, gave away most of my money. I mean, anytime anybody wrote in with a request, whether it was for a daycare center or a new pair of socks, I would right. give them a check. And that's how I somehow or other bought it all away. Um, <clears throat> and then. At a certain point, I realized that I really was more concerned with other people's involuntary poverty than with uh, voluntary poverty. It just—it doesn't right. interest me as a lifestyle. I'm not comfortable with it. I'm—you know—some of my friends have chosen it and are very, very happy that way. Right. And others, like myself, you know, I'm not it. You know the whole turning of folk to rock and the fusing of the two things in the mid-60s? How much of that would have been prompted by the desire to tap into a bigger pop audience rather than... By the people who did it? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I suppose that was probably individual. Right. And, uh, some people, have, for creative expression, had to move on to something else. I mean, I myself right. knew that it, shortly after maybe the second or third album that I did not want to be the world's oldest living folk singer. All right. And I've hardly sung any folk ballads, you know, for years. Sure. Um, but I think, you know, it has to be, it has, people have to be given credit for their own wanting to break through whatever their own barriers were and go on to other music. Well, I think it was maybe Phil Ox who suggested that the failure of that folk boom was that it didn't net the working class audience in general, Elvis's that audience. Sounds, that sounds so. That's why? It sounds so, Phil. All right. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think times just changed. It was a countercultural movement. Right. It was a movement really <laughs> against the great entertainment world of slick rock. And it was there for a fairly long time, and it was quite strong. And then, it, you know, it's, to me, it's something like jazz. Jazz had a heyday. Right. And then jazz receded. But the strong jazz and the good jazz is always there. Right. And it's right. the same thing with folk. I don't think that folk will have another 60s. But I, the fact is that it's sort of come back in a slightly different form right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, With the, the new songwriters, et cetera. And the return to roots and ethnic mm -hmm. music's rising. Yeah. You you took some very strong stands, like you went with Vanguard instead of Columbia because apparently Vanguard had released the Weavers when they'd been blacklisted and that. That must have made you quite unpopular in the industry. <laughs> I read a I read a review the other day or something about yeah. me which said um oh, I know it's Nancy Tintoff. All right. I'm talking about how when I you know, I wouldn't go on ABC's Hootenanny with All right. the yeah. the sort of Pop folk folk. Well, it was the it was how pop was how folk really became um, a focal point right. um, for the general public. Right. And I wouldn't go on because they had blacklisted Pete Seeger. Right. <laughs> and 
then uh, they got me on because they got they took Pete, and so I went on. All right. And apparently, in this point, and the guy who had directed the show just said, "Gosh, you think she's Thomas Mann? I mean, I wouldn't have this, and I didn't want that. And it's just absolutely impossible to deal with." But it also, as as a woman in those years, and even your kind of the anti-woman look, you know, the anti-glamorous pop woman look, must have been seen as subversive, tr truthfully, by uh, people who, who... Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, 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 of course. Yeah? Uh, well, it was, in a way. I mean, it was subverting um, from from what people accepted in our daily lives as the norm, the things that I didn't accept, you know? Right. It's only... It was only the beginning of the 80s, for instance, that a businessman approached me on the streets of San Francisco and said, are you Joan Baez? And I nervously said yes. And he said, and he embraced me and he said, boy, did I hate your guts in the 60s? Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> All right, right, right. You know? Well, you took a strong stand and I had to quote you when I recently did an analysis of Dylan when he arrived here in relation to the, the immobilization of people politically by drugs. Remember you said that his attitude seemed to be, let's all go home and get stoned, there's nothing we can do. And you were saying there's a, a lot we can do and let's get out and do it. Well, that's, you know, that's been the difference between me and so many of my cohorts. Right. And, um, on the other hand, now there's another breed, another brand of people who are doers. And that, that started, that evolution started with Live Aid. And it started, right. it didn't start, I mean, it started almost the opposite of the way that I worked or that, that I was comfortable with and still am in the early 60s. And that was from the ground up, as with King, you know, in the civil sure. rights movement, yeah. Yeah. going to jail and civil disobedience. However, there has been some virtue to working from the stars down. You know, as long as somebody at some point is willing to take a risk, then young people are going to see that somewhere in the world somebody cares about something. But, right. but you were criti critical of Dylan for not involving himself further in political activity. Well, I was then. I yeah. was critical of everybody. <laughs> right, right. I'm a lot less critical now. But he did. people have said that what he did was he helped people radically disorder the senses and just change their own inner perceptions first and then maybe change the world that way. Well, I don't know about that. He gave us the best music we had. Right, right, that right. That really filled our arsenals with the, the absolute finest music that we had. Right. And you are Joanna. I have no idea. <laughs> I really have no idea, and, I, and I'm serious about that. Okay. I, people fancy themselves as all sorts of things, and it may or may not be true. Right, but it summed up, his kind of philosophy was summed up in that, and sitting there stranded, doing our best not or to deny it. Uh -huh. I mean, that was that, that nihilistic kind of worldview. That's uh, for questions and discussions for you to have with him. All right. Okay. What did, there was a quote in the in one of those books too. Did he really say that he wrote all those protest songs just to sell them? Uh, I believe he did say that to me. Yeah, that that he he knew people would buy it. I don't know. Right. Uh, there's just one of the things, it's not about Dylan, it's about the kind of uh, an analysis of protest music, which said that the, in the end, uh, there was a survey done between 66 and of music between 66 and 70, that it became more a vehicle for social control rather than change. That people be got rid of their oppositional views to singing about things and maybe didn't do as much as they could have, and that immobilized them politically too. It's a left-wing reading. <laughs> um, I think that... that I think, well, we made a little documentary once when I went into Latin America and tried to give a concert tour and got thrown out of everywhere. Right. <laughs> all the concert halls. It was called Music Alone is Not Enough. Sure. Right, okay. As that. I think it's as simple as that. I would not want to be involved in social change for which there was not 
accompanying music. On the other right. hand, people have this kind of daffy idea that music's going to change the world, and by itself, it won't. Right, but we're seeing a lot of that now with Clinton in and people looking back and saying the 60s did do all this. Well, the 60s did something. Right. They didn't do a hell of a lot, but they did something. Uh, made us think just a teensy-weensy second or two longer before we <laughs> invade other countries. All right. Um, host, you know, there are some things that have changed since, since those days. But you... Rem yeah, sorry. Well, I was just going to say that I was... Uh, among other things that I consider gifts in my life... One is um, very, very low expectations of human behavior. All right. right. <laughs> it doesn't stop me from doing what I do. But you did remain right throughout the 60s. I mean, whether you were singing with King or, or being denied access to the Daughters of the Revolution's Constitution Hall, you remained active throughout it all. Oh, yeah. How come you weren't immobilized by the culture, by drugs, or by any of that? Was the political route too strong? Um, well, I'm not sure. I wasn't immobilized by drugs because I didn't take them. Right. Um, and... That is, I don't think that's any great virtue. I think okay. that's fear. <laughs> fear of them. Fear, fear of, fear, yeah, fear yeah. Of what would happen if I took them? And so, although I think I felt quite snooty about it, did you know, I did felt I did feel holier than that. It was only in looking right. back that I see that it was because I was too terrified to ingest anything. All right. That I never did. But the commitment to um, the commitment, or rather the concern, or the genuine compassion that I have for for other people suffering. It's just very, very real. But it, when you did something like Where Are You Now, My Son, that where you used the tapes made in Hanoi and that, I mean, that was very advanced even musically, but that must have led to you making many enemies. Well, I think I already had them by that time. It was 72. That's right, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you can't do... If you, I remember, and I won't give his name, but there's a okay. very, very well-known American star All right. who said to me, you know, I really want to do something this year. I really want to commit myself to something. I just don't want to alienate anybody. And I said, well, then don't, you know, <laughs> don't do it because you will alienate somebody. And do you, do you regret that, that you have kind of polarized people, maybe in America and throughout? I think that at one point I was, that was one of the Results of the things that I did, which I do not regret having done, because they were absolutely morally correct, and I still right. think that that's true, and that will happen, as I say, if you open your mouth about anything. I think I could have been a little more delicate, but then I couldn't have. Right. I was me at that age. Um, although probably some of the things I was involved in polarized, others have done just the opposite. For instance, I would say the trip to Sarajevo. All right. Well, you also made a lot of, uh, have become a hero of those you describe as the children of the 80s by founding Humanities International and stuff like that. Surely that's the positive feedback you get. Um, I do. You know, I get a lot of positive feedback. But, you know, on the other hand, people are such cowards. I never got very much negative <laughs> feedback because people are so starstruck in our day and age that when they approach you on the street, even if they hate your guts, they'll say, uh, I really love your albums rather than I hate everything you've ever seen. <laughs> so, so, so I'll never really know. When you did uh, you did the 25th anniversary uh, Amnesty Tour with performers like U2 and recorded MLK, why was that? What is it about their music or them that you hooked into? You did a lot of very contemporary Peter Gabriel stuff and all that at the time. Oh, I was invited, you know. Um, right. And I know in those situations I am, as, I am invited as the link between music and social consciousness. That's perfectly clear because I was not the kind of recording artist who had songs that the kids all knew right so those are delicate moments for me i i can't really do a very long set you know that will keep their attention or i couldn't at that point okay um, 
but I think it was appropriate for me to be there. And, the, you know, in those times, and we got close, and I got to know those folks a little bit, which drew me closer to, to their music. And you then recorded, though, the MLK. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, that just, uh, I'm wrapping it up, actually, and I've, I've done my best to rush through it. You've done excellent. <laughs> I'm flying along. Well, you, th that kind of Irish connection, you were with Dylan when he wrote Restless Farewell, which was based on The Parting Glass, and I talked to Tommy Makem, who was a huge influence on the folk thing in the beginning. People are now beginning to look very seriously again at the links between Irish-American roots musics. You, you see that all as valid? Oh, God, yes. It's, it's just so beautiful. I mean, the um, oh, Celtic Fergus... That kind of song. Yeah, yeah. You got them. I mean, I, I made, and a couple of tours ago, I was up in the middle of the night on the bus, and I thought I was going to make a list in my head of the most beautiful, I mean, heartbreakingly kind of beautiful songs I knew, and I think three out of the five were Irish. Right. You know, you guys just have it in your soil and your blood and your history. It'll be a pleasure to be there. Again. Well, I was even listening to like Silver Dagger again there this morning, and that's like the, the, the dagger and the whole kind of dark tale. I mean, that's incredibly Irish. I know. <laughs> You've got the rose and the fisted glove and all those yeah. just uh, old, old images, but there's something deeper about it somehow. Right, right. Well, I even heard recently, you know, the Chieftains? They tried to convince me that Heartbreak Hotel, they want to base the roots of rock in Ireland too. They say that if you if you speed up Heartbreak Hotel, it's a slip jig. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? Well, maybe it's partly your determination. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Me, I don't care. <laughs> okay, on the latest album... You... Up enough and I'll sing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On the latest album, you have got very contemporary voices like John Hyatt and Mary Chapin Carpenter and that. I mean, those are the people who would reflect what you're feeling apart from your own songs when you're writing on it too. Um, I don't even know that that's true. All right. This album is an experiment, and really the experiment was to see, could I be comfortable in a contemporary mode, uh, which meant for all me right. all sorts, I mean, it's just been fascinating. I've had to deal with all of my inner Berlin walls. All right. Why couldn't I try this? Why couldn't I try that? Why do I think that's too much percussion? Half of it's still my father's and mother's voices in my head. I mean, I haven't grown musically. And so I look upon it as a very happy first step in, in an experiment. And I'm very pleased with the album. And, I'm, and I've had a wonderful time singing the songs on these tours. And I think... Um, Chapin, I, I love Chapin, and we work together. You know, she and the Indigo Girls and I right. are a group. And yet, you know, the, because of the age difference, they're really quite different. And yet when we're together, when we get together, it's as though we were all raised in a backyard somewhere. Right. So there are some folk roots there. But when you say that about your father and mother's voice, that's not the folk purist's voice, is it? That it's, it's pure. It's pure. I don't know what it has to do with folk, right. but it's puritanical. It's not All right. useful. It's not useful to me. And part of it, in a way, probably was useful in keeping me away from people like Albert Grossman, whom I would not have been able to cope with. Right, you right. Know? But on the other hand, I'm 52, for Christ's sake. You know, it's time for me to find out what it is I enjoy doing. You also write, um, The Edge of Glory is dedicated to your dad. I mean, that's an element of reconciliation with all yeah. that, with those tensions, some of those tensions. Exactly, yeah. And to serve that purpose? Um, I father called he said well i got the album honey thanks for dedicating that song i'm not sure i know what it's about and i said well i don't either but i hope you'll like it <laughs> do, do you, oh yeah i just saw there was one interview you did in q last year in which the writer suggested that that rap music nowadays has become what social protest what folk music would have been to a lot of people 30 years ago 40 years ago would you agree probably, with that probably a little less available 
not not uh, any less interesting. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I the first thing that comes to my mind when somebody says rap music, not whether or not I it appeals to me, but the fact that the town, one town over from me in East Palo Alto, the parents are taking out burial insurance for their kids in high school. Oh God! Right. You know, so right. I think that I think rap music is important. Right. I have it, about two minutes left. Okay. Well, then the, the last, it's not. This is not a question. But when I brought up the Dylan thing, are you tired? Were you? Do you ever? Do you dream of doing an interview where somebody doesn't mention Dylan? Oh, I've had a couple. Yeah. No, actually, I've had several. Have you? I'm um, sorry if I. No, I felt that you didn't want even well, you know, for the connection to be made. The appropriate place for it. There's right. an appropriate place for it. But what happens is that people start stretching that, and one of the reasons is that they have more fantasies about it than I do. Right, right. Well, the reason I brought it up was because I had agreed with your your criticism or or, or the immobilization of, yeah. of of music politically because so many people followed him instead of you. Oh, no, it was, this was an excellent interview. I appreciate okay. it very much. I also appreciate the the clip at which we did it. Okay. And maybe we'll see you. I will drop around. That would be lovely. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. And if you want to read the article that came out of that chat you just heard, check my website joejacksoninterviewer.com Also, if you'd like to be notified of shows that focus on hundreds more interviews like the one you just heard, why not subscribe to the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast? Either way, thank you for listening.